Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Amen. Let's do that again. One more. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Amen. I'm trading my sorrows and I'm trading my shame. I'm laying him down for the joy of the Lord. And I'm trading my sickness. I'm trading my pain. I'm laying him down for the joy of the Lord. Yes. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Amen. Sing, I press. I press, but not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. I am blessed beyond the curse, for his promise will endure. His joy is going to be my strength. Though the sorrow may last for the night, his joy comes in the morning. As I'm trading my sorrow, I'm trading my shame. I'm laying it down for the joy of the Lord. Yeah. I'm trading my sickness. I'm trading my pain. Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Amen. Amen, amen. It's good to come to a God when we know we can trade those sorrows for his joy. Amen. Because we fall down. We lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. The greatness of his mercy and love at the feet of Jesus. We cry holy, holy, holy. We cry. to him this day. We fall down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. The greatness of 
God's mercy and love. The feet of Jesus we cry. we fall you before you this day. No matter what's gone on during the week in our lives, no matter how much trouble there's been, pain, sickness, the sorrows that do just seem like they come and come. But Father, we lay everything down at your feet. And Father, we cry how holy our God is. We thank you that Jesus is the one who stands before us and says, it's okay. I know that you fall down, but the most important thing that God loves us for is when we stand up and we cry holy. Be with our hearts and our minds open this morning, God, that we would stand before you, hear your word, and know that you have a message for us this day. Bless our pastor as he shares from the, the book of, that's one of the hardest books for us to understand as humans. But you gave us such an incredible message in that book. So let us put aside all the things that have encumbered us and listen and hear your message this day as we pray all of these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Please be seated. All right. Yeah, go ahead and grab a seat. And good morning. You guys doing well? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try something new, and I, I'm going to try sitting down today like you guys are as, as we're just kind of encountering this book. Sometimes I feel like in my ADHD, I'm back and forth and getting all excited. So I'm going to try to anchor myself here so all that energy can go into our conversation. And I know uh, that right now there's a lot of you that are watching from home because you're not feeling well enough to be here. And it's really frustrating that it's, it's like it's doing that again. And, I, and so for those of you who are at home right now, um, I just want to, I want to say a prayer for you. Father God, I lift up my brothers and my sisters who are feeling under the weather. Some, it's just irritating, it's a head cold, but for others, it's, it's much more uh, debilitating than that, the exhaustion or the cold sweats and the fevers. And so, Father, we lift up those who right now can't be with us in person. Lift up those who are struggling, whether it be with COVID or with something else that's keeping them from being with us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use even this to advance the kingdom of God. And we pray for hope. We pray that as we in open up God's word today, as we open up this letter that for some is really scary, it would actually fill our hearts with hope as it's been doing for me this week. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. Um, it's funny because probably about six months ago, as, you know, the the... 15 days to flatten the curve turned into a year, turned into two years, and it just kind of felt like, is this ever going to end? 
And, and coupled on top of that, all of the unrest of the last couple of years that's been happening, that I started hearing people say something that I hadn't heard them say throughout my lifetime. And that was, man, it really feels like we're in the end times. Man, it really feels like we're in the end times. The end times are upon us. And the truth is, they're absolutely right. We are in the end times. But the part I think that many of us, including myself, often forget is that this is nothing new. We've been in the end times for the last 2,000 years. The end times began when Jesus, the, the, the divine word through which God spoke the heavens and earth into existence, took on flesh and entered into our reality, born into a barn, destined to walk to the cross to take our sins upon himself. That was the beginning of the end times. And it will not finish until Jesus returns in his second coming, where he's going to completely once and for all break the yoke that Satan has upon our world. And yet we find ourselves living in this in-between time, between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And guys, in this in-between time, Scripture is very clear. Comfort is not going to be our default persecution will be the default. We will experience persecution if we are following Jesus. And the best analogy I can give you for the time that we the time that we find ourselves living in right now is what it must have been like for men and women living in Europe in enemy occupied territory between D-Day and V-Day. D-Day was the day that we all remember from Saving Private Ryan. It was the day that the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy to take back territory that an enemy of our way of life considered to be his. And V-Day is the day that the Allied forces declared victory over the axis of evil, as we like to call them. But I want you for just a moment to consider what life must have been like for men and women living in enemy-occupied Europe between D-Day and V-Day. There were 11 months between those two dates. And although historians tell us that D-Day pretty much marked the beginning of the end, because when we got that foothold in Normandy and we began to push back the, the Nazi war machine, Historians say the, the war was all but over. All that was left was for them, the, the, the axis of evil, to declare you know, their surrender. But imagine for a moment that you're living in enemy-occupied Europe during that time. You don't realize that the Allies are coming. You don't realize that Hitler and his war machine are on their heels. All you experience is a domineering presence of an occupying force that seems to be winning in everything that they're doing, seems to have control in everything that they're doing. Can you imagine how discouraged you would, might feel in them? Can you imagine how tempting it would be in that in-between time to bend a knee to the powers that be so that you can feed your family, so that you can maintain your job, so that you can keep a roof over your head? so that you can keep breath in your lungs. That was the experience of men and women between those 11 bloody months, between D-Day and V-Day. Even though the war was almost won, they were still in that in-between time. And that 
Imagine for a moment that they received a letter from somebody who was not in enemy-occupied Europe but could see what was really going on from the outside, a letter that wrote to them saying, hey, I know you're overwhelmed and I know you're discouraged, but don't give up. Don't lose heart because things are not as they seem. The Allies are winning. Hitler's on his heels. So don't bend a knee. Don't give in. Don't give up hope. That's what the letter that John sent to the seven churches throughout Asia Minor is intended to be. The letter of Revelation, the longest letter in the New Testament. It's also the last book in the Bible. And so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there with me. Turn to Revelation chapter 1. But Revelation is just that. It is a letter of hope and encouragement to men and women who are living in enemy-occupied territory between D-Day of Jesus' first coming and V-Day of his second coming. Written to men and women who are hard-pressed in every way to conform, to compromise, to begin to worship the power brokers of this world so that they can simply go on living. And that letter, that letter is written to pull back the curtain of the fog of war to help them to see clearly what's really going on so that they won't grow weary and they won't lose heart. I was thinking this week of what might the heartbeat, if I had to like sum up what the the message of Revelation is in a couple of sentences, I think this would be it. Can we throw that up there on the screen? John is basically saying in the letter of Revelation, I know that you're suffering greatly. And that it feels like Jesus is absent. I know you feel like evil is winning, but that's not really the case. Things are not as they seem. Jesus is not nearly as far away as he seems. And our enemy is not nearly as powerful as he seems. So don't give up and lose heart. Now, that's the heartbeat, the message contained in John's letter, but he couldn't just come straight out and say that. He couldn't just come straight out and say, hey, listen, Jesus is king, Caesar is not. Worship Jesus, not Caesar. Because remember where Jesus was, or I'm sorry, remember where John was writing from. He was writing from the prison island of Patmos where he had been shipped off to the stone quarry so that he would, he So that they're killing him for refusing to take the pinch of incense and say Caesar is Lord as a little act of worship, a little compromise, because he refused to do that. They didn't want to kill him because that would make him a martyr and that might stir up unnecessary energy. So instead they ship him off to this prison island. And as he's there, he can't just come straight out and say Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is, because then that letter would never make it off the island. As Bill pointed out on our Wednesday night Bible study, that letter would have had to go through multiple sets of hands, multiple eyes reading it to make sure there was nothing there that was compromising Caesar's dominion. And so John couldn't just come straight out and say that, but he still wanted to communicate to them that Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not, and Jesus is deserving of our worship. And he writes this letter to seven churches. Can we actually throw the map up there on the screen? Um, hopefully this map is legible for you, just so you can kind of get an idea. I really like this one because it actually shows the topography of the region that we're talking about. This is Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey. And the island of Patmos is down in the bottom right out in the ocean. 
it's kind of like Catalina Island for us, right? It's about 10 miles offshore from the city of Ephesus, which is the very first one in that little cove right there in the middle. And then you have the seven churches that are surrounding there. John has a really close relationship with each of these churches because he is kind of the elder statesman of the churches for this region. He was one who walked with Jesus. He had been with Jesus from the very beginning. And so he, we can take that off the screen now, he is writing to believers, encouraging them not to grow weary, not to give up, But he's doing so in a way that they would understand, but the Roman guards wouldn't. How do you do that? How do you write in such a way that only his intended audience would get it? Well, as we talked about last week, the Old Testament really becomes a bit of a cipher to make sense of the imagery that he is going to be giving. And these are, these are visions he actually had. I don't want to suggest that John is just making this up. He actually had these visions But those visions borrow heavily from visions that others had throughout the Old Testament. As I mentioned last week, there are only 404 verses in the entire letter of Revelation, but over 500 references to the Old Testament. So if we really want to understand what we're reading, if we really want to get the weight of the imagery that we're going to be exposed to, we need to be aware of what's going on in the Old Testament. And it will be my job and Bill's job and Jeff's job to help make those connections as we go along. So with that intro, are you guys ready to open up the letter and actually get to the first vision that John has? Excellent. I'm so glad for that rousing excitement. (laughs) Revelation chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 9 after I have a quick sip of water. All right. Revelation 1 verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos. Why was he there? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Because he wasn't willing to compromise. Because he wasn't willing to say, you know what, I was just joking. Jesus isn't Lord, Caesar is. Because of that, he was on the island of Patmos. On the Lord's day, which is Sunday, I was in the spirit, meaning that he was worshiping God, kind of buoyed along by the Holy Spirit, And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone, like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's pretty much how most people responded when they came face to face with God, as they fall on their face in reverential fear. 
Then he placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, but now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen and what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden, golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the seven angels or the messengers of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So that's our first taste of apocalyptic imagery. And we're going to get a lot of that through this book. But one of the things I want to remind you from what we talked about last week is that apocalyptic imagery is not intended to be pressed and taken literally, as if Jesus has a double-edged sword sticking out of his mouth. Instead, apocalyptic language and imagery is intended to peel back the kind of the, the curtain from what our eyes can see to expose what is really going on in the spiritual realm, to show what is really going on beyond what we can see with our own eyes. And what is it when this takes place, when this unveiling happens, what is it that we are seeing? The first thing that John sees when he turns around is he sees seven lampstands. Maybe they're menorahs, maybe they're just oil lamps that are burning, but they are providing light. And each of those golden lampstands symbolizes one of the churches that are being written to. So imagine that map for again, we don't have to throw it up there, but imagine that map and on that map, there are these golden lampstands representing churches that are radiating light into their community. And standing in their midst, he sees one that looks like the Son of Man. Now, that term right there would have clued John's readers or his listeners who know the Old Testament, immediately their minds would have gone to an image that the prophet Daniel described in Daniel chapter 7. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to go ahead and in a moment I'm going to throw it up on the screen, but I want to back up just a little bit before we get to the verses that I have here. This is a vision that the prophet Daniel had thousands of years before, a vision that John's Jewish and Gentile readers who were familiar with the Old Testament would totally have been familiar with. In this vision, Daniel looked, and there was a throne set in place, and the Ancient of Days, God the Father, took his seat, and his clothing was as white as snow, and his, the hair of his head was white like wool. Are you beginning to hear some similar imagery to what we just read about the one that is standing between the lampstands? And in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me, and now we can throw the, these words up on the screen. This is Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jews and Christians all were in agreement that this was describing the Messiah, God's anointed redeemer that he would send to reestablish the kingdom of God in the world. And it's no surprise 
that when Jesus began his public ministry, he recognized that the word Messiah had a lot of baggage with it, a lot of baggage. Lots of people had expectations of what a, the Messiah would do. And so instead of kind of using that very um, weighted down term, he chose that term, one like the Son of Man, or he called himself the Son of Man 80 times throughout the Gospels. So when John in his vision describes the person coming or standing in the midst of the lampstands as one like the Son of Man, immediately his readers who are familiar with Daniel's vision would know exactly who he's talking about. Who's he talking about? It's Jesus. He doesn't have to say it's Jesus because they know it's Jesus. That would have been the first thing that they noticed, but, but probably even more importantly is where he sees Jesus. Because in Daniel's vision, he sees Jesus in the throne room of heaven, wherever that happens to be. We'll talk about where that is later. But in his vision now, where does he see Jesus? This is the interactive portion. Where does he see Jesus? People at home are yelling louder than you. Where does he see Jesus? He's standing, yeah, thank you, standing amongst the lampstands, right? Standing in the middle of the churches. Now imagine for a moment that you're one of the believers living in one of those cities where those churches reside. You are hard-pressed to conform. It feels like Jesus is absent, like Caesar Domitian and, and his war machine is winning in everything. What would that image of Jesus standing in your midst say to you? <sighs> Hope. Yes, absolutely. I'm not alone. He's here with us. He knows what we're going through because he's here. But let's, let's, let's press in a little bit more. Actually, before I do that, I think that we need to sit with that idea that Jesus is not far off. He's right here in our midst because... I know that for many of us, and probably some of you who are sitting at home and feeling discouraged because there's just something, you know, energizing about being with community, actually being together. But I know that for some of us, it feels like over this last couple of years, Jesus has been pretty far off as well. Feels like he may have kind of been absent or, Jesus, don't you see what's going on? How could you possibly allow this to continue? And what we need to be reminded of is that Jesus is not far off. He is right here with us, right in our midst. He knows exactly what we're going through because he's with us. But now let's talk about how John sees Jesus and how that also is an encouragement. Because it's not just the fact that he's with us, but it's who Jesus is that should really bring us encouragement. Oh, I got to go back to Revelation. So I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. This is verse 12. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And amongst the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. Those who were familiar with the Old Testament would recognize that he's describing the high priest's garments. And so we're learning that Jesus is not just our Lord and our King. He is also our high priest. He's the one who stands over these seven churches. Yeah, John might be kind of their elder statesman. 
kind of like their bishop, but Jesus is the high priest. He's the one who intercedes on their behalf before God. He's the one that gives them direction and protects them. And I think that that's a good reminder for us as well. There might be 60 churches in Costa Mesa, but Jesus is the head of all of us. And we will only flourish as we are submitted to him. Yes, I might be a pastor. Yes, Jeff might be a pastor. Yes, Bill might be a pastor. But Jesus is our boss. He is our head shepherd. And we are submitted, or we hopefully are submitted to him in everything. Because he's our high priest. So I saw one like the Son of Man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head was white like wool, as white as snow. Harkens back to Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7 of the Lord Almighty, or of the Ancient of Days. And it would also communicate to us that Jesus, although he was born in a manger, he's far more ancient than that. Jesus is no child playing at being king. He is the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He himself has age and wisdom because he's, he's seen it all before. He was there before the world was spoken into existence. I mean, when I think of white hair, I think of wisdom that has been born through time and experience. And although what they're going through must have been new to them, it wasn't new to him. What they were experiencing must have felt overwhelming to them. It wasn't overwhelming to him. He knew what was going on. He knew what was coming. He, the first and the last, the ancient of days, was bracketing them in and holding them together in the midst of this in-between time between his first coming and his second coming. So the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing with fire. Obviously, he's not saying that he literally had fire in his eyeballs. Fire does what? It burns. More specifically, in, in imagery of apocalyptic literature, it purifies. Jesus, when he looks at things, purifies those things. He can look beyond the superficial and what seems to be to see what's really going on. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. And even the darkness is lit up when he looks at it. Nothing's hidden from him. Verse 15. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And we hear that and we go, okay, so he's got shiny feet. John's readers who were familiar, again, with the prophet Daniel's writings would have immediately thought of a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had and is recorded in Daniel chapter 2. I'm going to read it for you. You don't need to turn there right now. But I think it's worth hearing this vision because it'll help flesh out what those feet of bronze really mean. So, Daniel is describing to Nebuchadnezzar this dream that he had, and he's going to then interpret the dream. And he writes, Your majesty looked in your dream, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms made of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partially of iron and partially of baked clay. And, and what he's going to go on to explain is that this statue symbolizes 
the great nations of the world, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar being the head of gold, and the nations would progressively get weaker and weaker and weaker, baser and baser, until you get to those feet, partially of iron, partially of baked clay. And while, they, while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands, and it struck the statue at its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor of the summer, and the wind swept them away without leaving a trace. The point that he's getting at is that, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom might seem all-powerful, the greatest nation that the world had ever seen at that point, but it is fleeting. And ultimately, all nations have feet of clay that will be destroyed. So, how does that imagery then help us make sense of the fact that when he sees Jesus, Jesus' feet aren't made of iron and clay. They're made of bronze that have been burnished brightly from the fire. To me, it says that the kingdom that Jesus brings is not fleeting. Its foundations are not weak. His feet are strong. In fact, they've already been tested by the fires and found to be sufficient. And so his kingdom will stand while every other kingdom of the world will crumble. The nation, the kingdom he oversees and that he is establishing will have permanence, whereas every other nation is fleeting. Can you see how the Old Testament helps us make sense of the imagery that we get in, in the letter of Revelation? All right, going back to Revelation chapter 1. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Not literally saying that his sounds like a river, but think for a moment about a time that you've gone to the river. Maybe you're, you're by the river and it's rushing over the rocks. I don't know about you, but when I'm by that river, it's loud. That water rushing by, it's not, it's not a smooth, quiet dribble of a stream. This is rushing water over rocks and it's overwhelming. It kind of drowns out all the other noise. There's a reason why my wife and I use the sound of rushing waters both in our son's room and in our room when we're trying to sleep. Because it drowns out all the other noise. But it's not overwhelming and cacophonous. It doesn't cause anxiety in our hearts to hear it. It's also soothing. It's peaceful. It causes you to want to listen. And that's what his voice is like. It is both overwhelming, but brings a sense of peace. Not a sense of anxiety. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. Now, John will go on, or, or Jesus will actually go on in the end of this section to explain that those seven stars represent the seven angels assigned to the seven churches. And we'll discuss what that means next week. But the hearers of this saying that Jesus holds seven stars would also think, there's, there's layers to this, they would also think of some of the kind of pagan theology that they've been exposed to. Because according to Greek and Roman theology, the stars affected people's lives. 
your, the stars kind of affected your fate. And remember, in, as Bill mentioned on Wednesday, numbers are symbolic more often than not. And the number seven throughout apocalyptic literature always symbolizes the number of completion. So these seven stars can symbolize all of the stars in the sky, or perhaps they symbolize the seven planets that people actually knew about. And according to Greek theology, this is not Christian theology, but according to Greek theology, there was a goddess named Hecate who was called the first and the last. And Hecate was said to hold the stars in her hands and control people's fate. And kings and emperors like the Caesars loved to decorate their thrones with stars, suggesting to people that they too had some ability to control fate. And so when we see this image of Jesus holding seven stars in his hand, yes, they symbolize the angels, the messengers to the churches, but they'll also remind us that Jesus is the first and the last. Jesus is the one who holds our future in his hands, not the goddess Hecate or any other god, and certainly not the Caesars. Jesus is Lord and Jesus has control. So in his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. Now, if you ever wondered, is apocalyptic literature really supposed to be taken symbolically rather than literally, this should help us recognize that, yes, that is in fact the case. Because no, Jesus isn't walking around with a big broadsword sticking out of his mouth. Like he's Hannibal from the A-team, right, with the cigar. Like that's not, if that were the case, if Jesus literally had a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, then the reason you would hear the sound of rushing waters is because that's blood rushing over his teeth, right? But that's not the case. That's not what this is saying. Oh, come on, that was funny, a little bit. Give me something. <sighs> the fact that he has a double-edged sword would immediately... Remind the people that Jesus' words cut to the heart, cut past pretense, cut past any sort of obfuscation where we're trying to like position things and spin things. I mean, my, my firstborn is a master of spin, of explaining how something he did was actually in alignment. Like, he, he's going to be an attorney. Many of you have children that probably should grow up to be attorneys the way they can argue things, Right? But before we start throwing stones, we should probably look at ourselves too because we're pretty darn good at it. We have a lot of practice on spinning things. But Jesus' words, they cut right past all of that spin. They cut right past all of that posturing. My mind, when I hear that he has a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, immediately goes to Hebrews chapter 4. We all know it. Let's throw it up on the screen. In Hebrews 4, the writer of Hebrews says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitude of the heart. Jesus' words. Jesus was, is the word of God through which the world was spoken into existence. But his words are penetrating. 
And his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Every time we get a picture of God or of Jesus or of an angel, it's always wrapped in light, radiant with holiness. Holy otherness. That's what holy means, is other than the common. Jesus is divinely radiant. And so it's no surprise that when John sees Jesus in all of his radiant glory, he falls on his face in reverential fear as though dead. In fact, that's exactly what it says. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Like everybody else who ever saw God did. But notice how Jesus responds to him as he's cowering on the floor, bowing down in reverence. Then Jesus reached out and he placed his right hand on me. And he said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, but now look. I'm alive and forever and ever. That's not going to end. I'm never going to die again. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. What is the message that Jesus says to John as he is cowering there on the floor? Don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of me. I'm for you and I'm with you. And you also don't need to be afraid of your circumstances, John. I know they seem overwhelming. I know that you don't see how you're going to get out of this. I know that you're discouraged for those churches that are still under the heavy hand of Roman oppression. I know it seems like evil is winning, but you don't need to be afraid. Because I'm here. I. Not Hecate in the first and the last. I have overcome the very thing that you are afraid of, namely death. Not only that, but I hold the keys to death and Hades, which is the house of the dead according to Greek theology. On Wednesday, Bill pointed out that Again, symbolism, keys in apocalyptic literature always symbolize authority. So what does the fact that he holds the keys to death in Hades say? He has authority over death. You might want to get that. That might be Jesus calling. Love you, Jack. Um, we'll, we'll just wait. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just, uh, I'm glad you're awake. So Jesus is the one who holds the keys of death in Hades, so you don't need to be afraid. John, and, and to his readers, and to us, in all of our circumstances, you don't need to be afraid because you're not alone. I'm with you, and I'm greater than your circumstances. And then he says to John, instead of being afraid, I have a job for you. Instead of cowering in fear, I have a job for you. Write what you have seen. This is verse 19. What is now and what will take place. Again, apocalyptic literature peels back the curtain not only to reveal what's going to happen, but what is really going on right now in front of us that we can't see because it's clouded by the fog of war. 
And then he explains the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and that the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Again, next week we'll talk about the angels and what he means by that. But here's the point. John is writing to men and women who are living in that in-between time, which we refer to as the end times, that time between Jesus' first coming, the D-Day, when he came crashing into our reality, taking on flesh, and ultimately beginning to roll up and break Satan's control over our reality. And, and V-Day, the day when he will return a second time, to reestablish his kingdom once and for all so that there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more COVID, no more cancer, no more kidney disease, no more death. It's coming. But in this in-between time, we are all familiar with the fact that we suffer. We suffer greatly. It's painful to live in enemy-occupied territory in this in-between time. In this end times. And I can imagine that if I gave you five minutes to sit back and think, and I'm not going to do that right now, but, but just for a moment, consider what you are facing in your life right now. I mean, I look out here and I see about half of our church sitting in front of me, which means that there's another half that are at home that don't even feel comfortable being with us, whether they want to protect us from getting whatever they're dealing with, or they're afraid of getting what other people might have. And we live in a culture that has been transformed over the last two years by that. But it's not just COVID. It's politics and, 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 and the, the friction that that's caused. And it's, it's disagreements, whether it be in families. I mean, I can't tell you how many of my son's friends, families, their marriages are imploding. I can't tell you how much our kids are suffering and how difficult it is for them to simply connect. The life that they are living in this day and age is not like what I experienced growing up here in Costa Mesa, and it grieves me. And it might be because your kids are suffering, it might be because your parents are suffering, it might be because you yourself are suffering. Think of Tony, who has to carry his oxygen around with him so he can get a full breath. I think of Terry, who's at home right now because his bout of COVID was not nearly as gentle as my family's bout of COVID, and it's really affected him. And so he's just now kind of emerging from, and I think of people who are dealing with cancer, Pastor Jeff, who's dealing with kidney stuff. We all are carrying heavy weight, and our circumstances can feel pretty overwhelming. And here's the thing. I, our God is a God of props, and I love to use props too. So this here is one of those old school telescopes that you might use. We were just watching Master and Commander uh, last night, and, and he has one of these. And so yeah, this is like a telescope that you look through or a, a spyglass, if you will. And it's got two lenses. The big lens here kind of symbolizes our circumstances what's going on in our life. And typically, we as human beings tend to fixate on the hard stuff rather than the good stuff. So most of our circumstances that we're aware of is probably the hard stuff. The other lens 
is our spiritual worldview, our perspective of Jesus and where he's at in our life. And here's what I find. Human beings have a tendency, when presented with a spyglass or a telescope, to look at Jesus through our circumstances. And what happens when we do this? Our circumstances seem awfully huge, and Jesus seems itty-bitty, if you can even see him. It's hard to see much of anything in here. I can't see any of you. Our world begins to shrink in. Jesus seems small and weak or absent, and our circumstances seem like all we can see. And there's some of you who have been doing way too much looking through this side. And some of you, who because you're not aware of what's going on, you're letting other people on the news and social media tell you what's going on. You're going, oh my gosh, the world is coming to an end. Where's Jesus in this? And what John does, and this is what I find so fascinating and what I find so beautiful about John's letter. Notice that John, in his first picture that he gives us, and really it's Jesus, so I guess I should give all credit to Jesus because Jesus is the one who's revealing this to him. The very first thing that Jesus reveals is not how weak Caesar Domitian really is, is not how fleeting the nation of Rome really is. What is the very first image that he gets to see, that he gets to communicate to us? Jesus. Yeah, that's the pastoral question, right? Every question you don't know the answer to, Jesus. The very first thing that we get to see in John's revelation is a picture of Jesus. In other words, he's saying, stop looking at your world through your circumstances. Flip that thing around. And not only will you see that Jesus is far bigger than your circumstances, far more capable than you could ever imagine. But suddenly your circumstances will become a lot smaller. You'll begin to see more clearly that things are not as they seem to be. And your situation is not as dire as it seems. That's the invitation of Revelation is for us to flip our worldview around from staring at trying to see Jesus through our circumstances and instead looking at our circumstances through Jesus. And when we do that, everything changes. Though we may reside in enemy-occupied territory, though we may have an enemy that continues to try to lash out at our Lord by hurting us. Our Lord is not absent, and he is not powerless. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is our high priest who intercedes for us on our behalf. He is not far off. He is right here with us. And the worst thing that the enemy can throw at us, the worst thing that he can hold over our head, namely our own mortality, guess what? He's already overcome that. He's already broken the back of death. He holds the authority, the keys over death and Hades. So you don't have to be afraid. Because what's the worst the enemy can do? Kill you? 
Even death doesn't get the last word because of Jesus. That's the hope we have in the cross. Though we may suffer, though we may be hard-pressed on every side, our Lord is bigger than our circumstances, and he is right here with us. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back forward. And we are going to take a moment, a song, to simply fix our eyes back on Jesus and say, you are the source of our hope. Not a politician, not a political party, not our bank account, not a COVID count, not a, a media personality, not anybody else in this world, not even your own strength. Our hope is in him. Let's take a moment and declare our dependence upon him. Because we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be a slave to fear any longer. Because you're no longer slaves. You are sons and daughters of God. Let's go ahead and celebrate that. Sing with me. No longer slave to fear. I am a child of God. And I'm no longer a slave to fear. Because I am a child. I'm no longer a slave to fear. 
God's people say. Amen. There we go. You don't have to sit down. You can stay seated or standing up. I know, Gary. I know. I'm not going to be here long, I promise. I love getting to do life with you. I'm so grateful to get to journey through the broken path of this sin-warped world with you. We need one another. But even more than that, we need proper perspective. Because when we get caught up in the fog of war, our perspective diminishes and God seems really small or absent. And some of us have been feeling like he's absent completely. And in the midst of that, your circumstances seem overwhelmingly huge and and insurmountable. And what Jesus has blessed us with today through John is a reminder that Jesus is still bigger than our circumstances. And he is not far off. He is with us. And that's good news. And guys, like John, Our tendency, when we begin to recognize who Jesus is, might be to fall on our face in abject horror because we realize he's light and I'm darkness and light can't reside within the presence, I'm sorry, darkness can't reside within the presence of light. Oh, woe is me for I'm undone because I'm a man of unclean lips. Amen. 
But not only does he reach out to each of us and say, don't be afraid because I'm here. You don't have to be afraid of your circumstances because I've already broken the back of them. But now he continues to remind us that we have a purpose and a part to play as sons and daughters of God. It is not simply to rest in our salvation and in our safety, not to stay in a holy huddle. We are called to now go and be ambassadors of hope. Just like he said to John, hey, don't keep this hope to yourself. Write down what you've seen so that my brothers and my sisters around those seven churches can also be encouraged. Do not hold on to what you have heard today for yourself only. There are others who desperately need to hear the hope that we have in Christ. It is not in our own strength. It is not in our bank account. It is not in our youth. It is not in our wisdom or our PhDs. It is not in a politician. And it is not in a superstar that we happen to follow. Our hope is firmly in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is not far off, he is with us. So now go, be the church, carry this hope that you have with you. If you guys have prayer requests, please let us know because we want to hold them up with you. You can drop those in the, in the box in the back. If you have tithes or offering, you can drop those. I hope to see some of you on Wednesday night for our Bible study where we continue to unpack a little bit and have some small group time to process through what we've just heard because we're better when we do this together. But even as you leave, even if you drive away alone, remember, you are not alone. He is with you, so you don't have to be afraid. Have a wonderful week. Forever God is faithful Forever God is strong Forever God is with us Forever and ever Forever God is faithful Forever God is strong wrong.